and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Am I on? There we go. All right. Well, uh, I, I forgot to mention one thing I was going to uh, mention just moments ago. That is the time in our service right before uh, the greeting of everyone where we normally bless our children and, and send them off to Sunday school, which we're still in summer mode a little bit here. Can I get an amen to that? We're still in summer mode. Like every year, school seems to start like a week earlier. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy, but we're still in summer mode here. Kids will be back um, and we'll be dismissing them in Sunday school during the sermon starting on September 11th, so a few more weeks the Sunday after Labor Day. And since I'm mentioning that, this might be a good time for me to mention our new children's ministry director. We have been praying for uh, someone to step into this role, and it's just really exciting to announce Tammy Walker. Would you stand up, Tammy, just briefly? Tammy's going to be our new children's ministry director. So if you are interested in serving this school year... And, and, and loving our children and teaching them the word of God and showing, modeling, and teaching them how to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we're about here. Uh, you can see Tammy uh, after the worship service. You can contact the church office. All right, I meant to say that earlier. Okay, so pause and transition here uh, into the sermon. Before we get to the passage today, Let me explain one of the primary reasons that Mark wrote his gospel. For those of you that are guests, this is your first Sunday. We have been on a journey the last few months going through the gospel of Mark. And whether we're reading Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, it's a good question to ask, why did that particular gospel writer write that book? Each of the gospel writers presents the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, but they do this from their own perspective, and they do this with a particular purpose and, and with a particular angle. And so, for example, in John's gospel, he tells us explicitly why he wrote his gospel. He does this in numerous places. In chapter 19, he writes, the man who saw it, that's referring to himself. Can you bring all the lights up in here, Jake? Uh, the man who saw it has given uh, the man who who saw it, referring to John, the writer of the gospel, who saw it, Jesus' death, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. He wrote his gospel so that you would believe in Jesus. He's even more explicit. John is in the next chapter, in chapter twenty. 
He says, but these, these words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, Mark doesn't tell us exactly in his, in an explicit way like that, why he wrote his gospel. And so there is a little bit more debate as to why he wrote, what his particular theology is, what his particular bent is. And there's probably a few different angles or a few different purposes for why he wrote his gospel. But I want to give you right now what I think is, is really one of the primary reasons that Mark wrote his gospel. And it has to do with what is illuminated right behind me. The cross. Now, as you look at this cross, I've been praying, and I've been praying this for myself, and I've been praying for you this week. As you look at this cross behind me, I'm praying that you would today be able to look at this cross and think of the cross in in a new way, or in a fresh way if you've thought about the cross in this way before. But let let me tell you this. For the readers of Mark's gospel, for Mark himself, the idea of having a cross on a wall or on the back of our cars or in that day on the back of a donkey uh, or around our necks or our anklet bracelet or our... We put a lot of uh, things in all sorts of piercings, all kinds of different places today, don't we? The thought of putting a cross uh, around your neck on the back of your car on a wall would have been not only outrageous but grotesque. Think about if you were very familiar and watched people regularly executed by the state, say in a wheelchair, and you came in today, and this is something that we regularly watched in public, the execution of criminals in a wheelchair, and you walked in here today, and we have one of these electric, what did I say wheelchair? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I don't even know what I'm talking about. You see, you know what I'm talking about. Why, why did I say wheelchair? I'm back in last week's sermon. Uh, paralytic. All right, I was confused. Are you guys with me? I'm not with me, but you're with me. You know what's going on. An electric chair, not a wheelchair. Imagine we have an electric chair illuminated on the wall behind me. It would be outrageous. This has to do with why Mark wrote his gospel. Let me give you a definition of what a cross is. A straight and erected piece of wood fixed in the earth with a transverse beam designed to publicly torture and execute criminals. This is what a cross was. And so Mark is writing his gospel in part, to overcome this completely outrageous idea that the Son of God, that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would die this kind of death. Maybe to help us get back into the mind of a first century reader, you can imagine yourself, no matter what your age, imagine you're you're married and you have adult children. You're living in the first century and your uh, adult daughter brings home to dinner 
the man that she's uh, possibly going to marry. This is the get the get to know uh, phase. Anybody remember? Have any? I have terrifying memories of of that. Does anybody have? Anybody with me have terrifying memories of that? A moment. So imagine you're in the first century. Adult daughter brings the guy having dinner, getting to know this guy for the first time, and he tells you that he worships and prays to a guy that was killed on the cross. You're used to traitors and criminals being killed on the cross. This guy is not going to make the cut likely, okay, when he, when he reveals that. That he worships Jesus, the Messiah, the guy from Nazareth, set up camp in Capernaum. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my Master. They're like, no way. Because somehow they, this couple, you, I'm, I'm asking you to step into this theoretically, they uh, have no idea. They haven't heard about his miracles. They haven't heard anything about him. But someone who died on a cross is not someone to, to hang around with, to follow, to admire, to worship to pray to. So Mark wrote his gospel in part to overcome that. So, just to summarize what we have seen, what Mark has been doing has been writing and and putting a spotlight on the incredible things that Jesus has done to complement this astonishing and outrageous thing that we're not going to get to for, for many, many weeks, that Jesus ends up dying a death on the cross, not as a common criminal, but as our sin substitute. And so, so Mark is drawing attention immediately, moving from thing to thing to thing to show how awesome and how compassionate and how glorious and especially how powerful Jesus is. So the first thing that, one of the first things we looked at in chapter 1 to to, to compensate for this scandal of Jesus dying on the cross is Mark drawing attention to this the miraculous calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John for those of you that weren't here or aren't familiar with the story these guys are fishermen they're they're everyday folk and they're in the middle of their occupation and their job and Jesus words are so powerful he says to them come and follow me and they leave their business immediately and begin to follow Jesus 24 7 Next, we saw the authority of Jesus in the way that he taught. He went into the synagogue in Capernaum, and he taught like no one else they'd ever heard. He taught with authority, saying that the Torah, all of these, many of these passages in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, are written about me. He taught with authority. Mark is drawing attention to all of these things. While he was teaching there in that synagogue, there is a demon-possessed man interrupts the the service there, and Jesus demonstrates his authority over the demonic realm in front of everyone, casting a demon out of that man. He then heads to Peter's mother-in-law's home where he heals her. The whole town comes out after sunset on the Sabbath, and he heals many and casts out demons there, and his reputation is spreading. Jesus is like this incredibly powerful individual that is a magnet for people. And Mark is wanting us to see that yes, he suffered. Yes, he died on a cross in this shameful way. But he lived a life like no one else had ever lived. The one thing that is not miraculous, that's not astonishing, 
is right before Jesus is about to go out and travel amongst all the villages around the Sea of Galilee, he gets alone with God the Father to pray. He gets up early and sneaks out of the house. And this is about the only thing in these opening segments of Mark's gospel that are not just, you are kidding me. He did that? He heals the man with leprosy. This is the one snapshot we get of his long journey all around the Sea of Galilee. Mark doesn't tell us about all the different towns he went to. He just tells us, he shows us his power. He healed this man of of leprosy. And then last week's passage, you can see these are kind of increasingly, like the awe factor is just increasing as we move forward. This man that we would call a paraplegic, the Bible describes him as a paralytic, Jesus tells him to get up and take his mat and walk, and he does. And not just those who are now inclined to follow him, but even the skeptics, the Pharisees, they all see this, and they are in amazement of what happened. What I'm saying today is Mark has written all of these things out to overcome this scandalous death that people would have watched regularly in public. We're going to see the miraculous calling of Levi here in just a moment. We're almost ready to get into our passage. But to just summarize it on the screen, why did Mark write the Gospel of Mark? He wrote it to provide a reasoned and substantiated written account that Jesus is the Son of God, even though he was tortured and executed as though he were a dangerous criminal. We have to get into our uh, first century readers' minds to understand what he's doing. He wrote his gospel to overcome Jesus' scandalous method of death, especially for first century readers. The cross, of course, has become something else today. And so my purpose today isn't to talk about whether we should have crosses on our walls or on our cars or around our necks. I I don't really have strong opinions about that. But we have to understand after 2,000 years, the cross has now become the symbol of Christianity. But 2,000 years ago, it was like not a wheelchair, but an electric chair. This is in line with Paul's, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Mark's purpose is in line with what Paul writes. We preach Christ crucified to Jews. This is a stumbling block to the Jews in that ancient first century world. This is a massive stumbling block. This is for criminals and traitors, the cross. And to Gentiles, it's just simply foolishness. Foolishness. Another uh, scholar writes this. He says, crucifixion found its most widespread use among the Romans as compared to other peoples of the first century who inflicted it on the lower classes, such as slaves, common criminals, and unruly foreign subjects. They considered it an effective deterrent and for this reason carried it out on public squares or principal streets and roads so that the greatest possible number of people would witness the ultimate humiliation of the gruesome punishment of a naked individual condemned to this form of death. This was usually aggravated by an inhuman flogging of the victim preceding the crucifixion and a denial of a burial after it. My purpose here in just these first few minutes was to give us a picture of what the cross was like in someone's mind in the first century and to give us an understanding of why Mark is immediately going from miraculous thing to miraculous thing to miraculous thing to show someone 
who knows that Jesus died on a cross, who he actually was and what he did. All right, are you, are you with me, church? Let's get into our passage now. It's a short one. It's in uh, chapter 2. It was just read, and we're at verse 13. Let me begin reading verses 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out uh, beside the lake, beside the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now again, this calling of Levi, who is also known as Matthew, follows right on the heels of this amazing story, those of you that weren't here last week, where the four guys can't get this quadriplegic, most likely this paralytic, to Jesus. So they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus forgives this man's sins. And then he tells him to get up his mat and to go home and walk. And everyone witnesses this is a historical event that happened. And right after that, he now calls this tax collector who leaves his profession at the ready here, at the moment, at the power of Jesus' words, and he follows him. He leaves. Now, we have to have, again, a picture in our mind who a tax collector was. So this was a guy who had some bling, okay? This is a guy who maybe pulls into the Ritz-Carlton in his uh, Lamborghini or his uh, Tesla, maybe. Probably not a Tesla. Probably not, right? You know, we just got back from Southern California. It is amazing the, the fancy cars that you see cruising around down there. We're in a parking lot in Malibu, and there's, there's like multiple Lamborghinis, Ferraris kinds of things in there. My kids are like poking their heads up, wanting to go walk around the parking lot. It's a little embarrassing. You know, it's like, like oh, you know, standing over this car. And he would have driven a car like that, Matthew or Levi. He, he was kind of like a, a member of the mafia today, but a mafia that's sanctioned by the government. Okay, this is not a man of a sterling reputation, but this is a man of massive wealth. And Jesus comes up to him, and he's sitting there at the place where where he collected this money, and he says, follow me. And he gets up, and he follows Jesus. Again, Mark is showing us the power and authority of Jesus' speech and, and the influence that he has on human beings like Levi, like Peter and Andrew and James and John. One commentator writes this, Levi collected taxes and thus collaborated with Herod Antipas, who in turn collaborated with the Roman Empire. As the occupying political force in the Jewish land of Palestine, Rome and all who collaborated with Rome were despised by pious Jews. Jesus is a Jew, remember that. His followers are all Jews. At this point, tax collectors were despised by them. The taxation system was corrupt. Most tax collectors skimmed money from the taxes for themselves. Uh, Another commentator writes, they routinely demanded inflated payments. And if working for Rome, they were despised as traitors. Their houses were regarded as impure and they were expelled from the synagogue. This is not the kind of person that a quote-unquote religious rabbi would, would, have, would hang out with, 
would call to be one of his followers. This is a shocking thing. This, in a sense, is a miraculous thing to the first century reader, what's going on. Tax collectors don't respond to calls from rabbis like this. But this is no ordinary rabbi. Let's look back at verses 15 and 16, what what happens next. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the many who followed him, the many is referring to the tax collectors and sinners. So this wasn't an isolated incident, Mark's telling us. There were many people in this kind of category, and in my Bible, sinners is in quotes. This is giving us the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the pastors, if you will, of the day, their perspective. Their perspective is people like Levi are sinners, tax collectors or toll collectors. We don't hang out with them. Many of them are coming to follow Jesus. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? This isn't, these are not the kind of people to hang around with. Notice that they ask the disciples, they don't ask Jesus. They have just seen the incredible power of Jesus and in a sense were shown up by him, by his healing of the paralytic. By showing to the people that he's not blaspheming when he says he forgives sins. He actually has that authority. He has backed up his words. So they don't come at Jesus. They come at his disciples. Asking him, why would he do this? Well, one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons that he does this. I'm off track here. So some of you that like uh, outlines, here we go. Um, point one, Levi responds to Jesus', Jesus words in a way similar to the paralytic. We already said that. Um, But one of the reasons that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have this perspective of why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners, this Jewish rabbi, is because of passages like Ezra 9. Let's look at this uh, together. And I could have chosen a variety of passages here, but take a look at this. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said. Here's the part why, why I'm quoting this. The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. I'm quoting this so that you will get a perspective on why the Pharisees, why the religious leaders have a a, 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 a view of we don't eat with people like that. Because there was a time, there was a season where God's people was the nation of Israel and he gave them very specific commands about what they are to do in the land and who they are to interact with and who they are to intermarry with and who they are not to intermarry with. And he's called them to be separate. Now people were welcome who believed in Yahweh to come in and be a part. But there was a season in the history of God's people where God's word is calling them to separate. But that time has passed. And this is part of what Jesus is communicating by eating with tax collectors and sinners, people that would have been thought of as unclean. Another commentator writes this, 
He says eating in the house of a toll collector sinner, someone like Levi, Matthew, is liable to bring ritual defilement from contact with unclean dinnerware, furniture, and garments, less likely from food not butchered and prepared according to the Mosaic law, for a Palestinian Jewish host would be unlikely to serve such food. What he's saying is what's unclean about Jesus eating there wasn't the food. He would have served kosher food. But the garments, the furniture, the dinnerware, the Pharisees, they thought of these things as unclean and and it cuts you off from God if you go and eat with them. Jesus is communicating something very loud to them and to us. That that time has passed. The time for separation has passed. And the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures are not calling. They were at that time calling for separation, but now they are calling for compassion. To all peoples. The gospel is for all nations and all peoples and all tribes. And we are to take it to those who need it. So we see Jesus' mercy and inauguration of a new covenant displayed by eating with sinners. He's sending a strong message to us about the kind of people that we should go after anyone. There are no barriers. Religious people, non-religious people. People who, who have bad reputations, people who don't, anyone that is, that is hungry for God is who we are to go after. Final verse here, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. Jesus' call is for those who recognize their need for a savior His call is not for know-it-alls, as it were. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, are playing the role and acting like know-it-alls. We don't need him. Even though they see the power of Jesus and the miracles of, of what he does, they're going to deny him, many of them, most of them, throughout Mark's gospel. A takeaway from this passage, and we'll close with this for you and I. A takeaway from this passage is God wants you and I to break down whatever barriers may exist between us and other people who who recognize their desperate need spiritually. Their desperate need for a Savior. We know who that Savior is. And our mission is to take the Gospel to them. It's amazing how, without intentionality, how much the church today is somewhat, and not just our church, but the church in general in America in 2016, is kind of like the Pharisees. I'm not sure exactly how we manage the reputation that we have, but we we don't have a very good reputation, particularly in this state. As I was praying over this and and studying this passage this week, I thought of a memorial service that was here uh, just a couple years ago. And The place was filled. All these chairs were filled. Very few of the people here were followers of Jesus. There were, it was a rough crowd. It was kind of a tax collector kind of crowd. You know what I'm talking about? Very many Harleys and tattoos here today we don't see. There there was just tons of, you know what I'm talking about? You ever been to a biker bar? Yeah, yeah, no. She has, okay. Well, we're going to meet in my office afterward. We're going there tonight. Um, to to get some uh, training. The reason I'm bringing this up is I had several comments from people 
after that memorial service about lightning striking and we're not really welcome here. I haven't been in a church since I was a kid. And there was this kind of implicit thing that, that we're kind of have it all together and there's this judgment and we just came in for this and we're, and we're going to get out of here. How do we have that reputation? Do we have that reputation? We do, sadly. So I want to I pray now. And I want to pray that the Lord would be changing you and changing me and changing churches all around the foothills, that we would not have that reputation, but that we would have the reputation. It doesn't matter what your background is. The solution to your life, whether you know it or not, the worldview that you should have, the person that you need to have a relationship is with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us.